we're talking about what it means to have faith. And what we're learning is that faith is not so much something you have. It's something you practice. Faith is not something we possess only. I mean, it is that. But it's something that we practice. And so what we're doing is we're looking at different characters in Hebrews chapter 11. And we're watching the way different characters act when they have faith. Because if faith is a practice, then what it looks like changes from person to person, depending on our personality, but also depending on the circumstance. The circumstance that we're in requires us to have faith, but because the circumstance is different than the one before, the one coming, faith will look different in different circumstances, and it will surely look different in different personalities. There, are you with me? We'll be moving kind of quick again today. So start tracking. Abraham is an example of faith. In the Hebrews chapter 11, there are 40 verses that comprise Hebrews chapter 11. Eight of those verses pertain to Abraham's story alone. If you include the interlude in verses 13 through 16, because they appear in the middle of Abraham's story and they kind of describe his life, then 12 different verses out of 40 pertain to one person. That's a disproportionate amount of attention given to one character. If you start reading Hebrews 11 and you counted the characters, depending on how you count, you'll get somewhere between 15 and 16 different characters in Hebrews 11. But I'm telling you, up to 30% of the entire chapter is about one guy. So clearly, Abraham is the granddaddy of them all when it comes to having faith. When you look at Abraham, you think about faith, and when you think about faith, you have to go back to Abraham in order to think about it. Paul is very clear about this. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 6 and 7, he said, Consider Abraham. This is in the New Testament, by the way. Consider Abraham. He believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. You'll say the same thing in Romans chapter 4. Abraham did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. He was strengthened in his faith, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. And Hebrews 11 will pick it up and say, So by faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. This is big news, you guys, because much of the world right now is still trying to trace their descendants back to Abraham. Whether you're Jew or Muslim, you're still trying to go back to Abraham as if he were the start of your race, of your people. But what Paul is saying is, Abraham is not so much a nationality, he is a kind of person. So, being a child of Abraham is not genetics. It's the way you live. 
You hear what I'm saying? When you live by faith, you live like Abraham. And so you become his kind of person. Because he marks a turning point in the way people think about God and in the way people respond to God. When you hit Abraham, religion changes 180 degrees. And so it's not just about having the genetics. It's about having the character of that guy in you. And when you live like that, you become one of Abraham's descendants. That's Paul's point. So we spend a disproportionate amount of time in this series talking about Abraham because Abraham is kind of the place where you look at faith and you start saying, wait a minute, to live by faith is to live a distinctly different life. When we start living by faith, we go from living according to things known to things unknown. We shift from things we see to things we cannot see. When you start learning to live by faith, you believe in something not only because you can prove it, but because you were told and on the authority of the one speaking, you believe it to be true. And so when you live by faith, you don't just believe something, you actually trust it. And you don't just trust it when things are going really well, you trust it when things are going impossibly hard for you. You, you see what I'm saying? That's why to live by Abraham is to live in an entirely different way. Most people don't live like this in the world. They function on what they can prove, not on what they were told. They function on things they can see, not what they cannot see. They believe in what is known, not in what is unknown. And they have faith when it's easy, but not when it's hard. And so the call to have the faith of Abraham is a call to become a distinctive and a different kind of person. Now, says Paul, you are Abraham's kids. So go live like that. So last week, Chris introduced us to the life of Abraham, and he made some incredible statements about obedience. He said that when we are Abraham's children, one of the things we do is we obey when we don't know what's going to happen next. I got to come down here because you guys have that distant look in your face. <laughs> it is easy to obey when you know what the outcome is going to be. Anybody can do that. That isn't faith, that's evidence. But people who live like Abraham obey when they don't know what the outcome is going to be. So while he was preaching last week, I made a note to myself on this. 
And the note said, obedience is the compliment you pay to God when things are unclear. Obedience is the compliment that you pay to God when things are unclear. Because when they're clear, anybody can do it. It's when you don't know what's going to happen. And the only thing you know is what God said. And what he said makes no sense at all. But you know it was God who said it. He just says, leave the land you're in. Doesn't tell you where you're going, just tells you where you shouldn't be. Huh, thank you very much. But to believe and to obey in that moment is a huge shift in character. Do you see what I mean now when I say most people don't live like this? So, what we must understand is that to be a person of faith is to live like that. And you can see how it starts to become a different kind of person. Abraham, uh, Abraham believed, but he did not believe all at once. This is a great truth because it means that God does not tell us everything at one time. He never lays the whole thing out and says, if you obey me today, this is what will end up and this will be all the steps along the way you never need to worry. God basically says, and this is a really rough translation, this is what I will do and I'm not telling you anything else today. You should worry. But while you worry, you should believe me and trust me. Because when things don't go the way they're supposed to, remember, I told you that I would be with you. That it's, it's a, it's, this is the way it is with Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, he is told, I will make you a great nation and you will bless all the people of the earth. But he has never told anything about a child. So all he does is he leaves the land he was in, goes to a land he was sent, but he doesn't know why he's doing this. He has no idea that at the age of 99 or 100, he's going to have a boy. He is not told this. He is only responsible for the thing that God told him today, not for the whole thing. See it? And so in Genesis chapter 12, God just says, leave your land, I'll make you a great nation. And then he steps back and he stops talking. Now you have to take a step. And when you take it, in Genesis chapter 15, God comes back and says, by the way, I will not only make you a great nation, I will give you a son who will be the heir of the promise coming from your own body. And you go, whoa, this is new information. But he never says anything about Sarah. He never says the, that, the, that the boy's going to come from Sarah. He just says the boy will come from you. So what does God want from you on that day? He wants you to do the next thing that's in front of you because that's the only thing he's giving you. Are you tracking me? So in Genesis chapter 17, he comes back a third time and says, by the way, I will make you a great nation. The son will come from your own body. And guess what? Sarah is going to be the mother. Now you're like, whoa, wait a second. She's 90. I was going to pick somebody in the audience today and just, I'm going to find someone who's close to 90, but I thought she'd slap me if I did. So just picture... Just picture somebody who is a little beyond their childbearing years. This is what you find out in Genesis 17. 
Listen to me. You didn't know that in chapter 12, and you didn't know it in chapter 15. Now you know it in chapter 17, and you are being called to believe something that you were not called to believe three chapters ago. Are you with me? But he never says anything about the timing. He just says, Sarah's going to have the boy. Goodbye. In chapter 18, he comes back a fourth time. And he says, by the way, it'll be next year at this time. <laughs> now you're like, wait a second! You see what God is doing? He is walking you into a life of faith. Why do I tell you this? Because sometimes we are so hard on ourselves when it comes to faith. I mean, I am. I look at Abraham and I go, man, I can't do that. That dude's a rock star. I mean, that's Hebrew for man of faith. <laughs> I mean, he is way, way beyond my level. I can't do this kind of stuff. And then when I actually read the story, right, I go, wait a second, I can do that. God will simply lay in front of me the next thing he wants me to do. And when obedience pays its compliment, I will still be in line. It'll come. It'll come. Give yourself a break, people. You don't have to have chapter 18 faith if you're living in chapter 12. So Abraham has faith, but not all at one time. Because God doesn't tell us everything all at one time. And Abraham has faith, but not all the time. This helped me a lot. Because again, I look at Abraham as this guy who has perfect faith. And I can't tell you, I shouldn't say it, but I was almost delighted to learn to read of the ways he screws up. I mean, it's not that I want somebody to do this. It's just that I know that I do, and I think you do. And so it helps me to resonate with someone to say, wait a second, you're going to love this. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, it says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. I cited it to you two times. In the Apostle Paul's language, that is the moment that Abraham got saved. If he was a Wesleyan, he would have said, oh, I got saved in Genesis 15. I believed and God credited it to me as righteousness. Are you with me? Are you still with me? That's chapter 15. Hagar is a chapter later. Uh-oh. That comes after the hour I first believed. Right? And then in chapter 17, God comes back to him and says... I'm going to give you a son through Sarah. Wait for it. Abraham falls on his face and starts laughing. And this guy is saved. <laughs> and he is laughing at the promises of God. Right? And then in chapter 18, Abraham and Sarah are lying. Chapter 18, the Lord comes back to him and says, this time next year you'll have a son. And when he says it, 
Sarah is in her tent and she laughs to herself. <laughs> okay, God is out there talking to Abraham. She's in the tent behind him going... <laughs> God says, why is Sarah laughing? She heard. He heard me. Sarah says, under her breath, from the tent, I was not laughing. <laughs> Hear it? That's deceit. Yes, you were. And the Lord says, yes, you were laughing. And that's the end of the story. You're like, come on, man, wrap it up. That's the whole story. Here's my point. Faith is never either or, people. It's more like on again, off again. Some days you got it, and some days you don't. It's like a power outage. What you want is a steady stream of faith every day of the year. But what you actually get in life is something that's like a power outage. Like a four-hour block when there is no faith, right? And what I want you to know is this is natural. This happens to everyone. Give yourself a break. Just step back and say, it's okay. God is teaching me how to believe the same all the time. It's okay. Go easy on yourself. Are you with me? Faith never moves mountains. God moves mountains. Faith just believes he can do it. So, Abraham has faith, but it's never the faith that does it. It's always the promises of God. Now, here's a turn in the message. Pay attention. So, the life of Abraham is not so much a story about a man's faith. It's a story about God's promises. If it teaches you this much about what it means to have faith, it teaches you this much about what it means for God to make promises. Because ultimately, what guides the story are the promises of God. God says, I will do something, and He just does it. And not even Abraham can screw this up. And I'm not being irreverent about this. You heard Chris's sermon last week where God said, go to a country where I will call you and he just leaves. And it's this bold statement of faith, right? But what happens is he gets in the country and he runs out of food and so he goes into Egypt and the first thing he does in Egypt is he just about sells his wife over to the Egyptians so he can eat. Think about that. Abraham is just this close to sacrificing the entire game plan because he's out of food. If his wife is taken by the Egyptians and becomes their wife, the whole game is up. He is that close. But God will not be stopped. 
And so God appears to the Egyptian in the night and says, you touch her, I'll take you out. That's a rough translation, but that's not far off. You touch her and you're dead. They are shocked. They said, you told me this was your sister. <laughs> Abraham's like, yeah, I thought I was running this thing. But he finds out that it is the promise of God that makes history move forward. Our lives are not a story of things that we have done. They are not a long line of degrees that we've gotten or accomplishments that we've had or organizations that we've built or friends that we've made or money that we've made. This is not the story of our lives, church. The story of our lives is the story of how God was faithful to us when we were not faithful to Him. How He kept us going when we were that close from wrecking everything. That is the story of the saint's life. So you never get to a funeral of an old guy and say, well, here's the story of a man who was faithful. You get there and say, here's the story of how God was faithful. Sometimes because of Him and sometimes in spite of Him. God keeps His promises. Are you tracking now? Problem is, we give them back. God will make a promise and we'll give it back. I mean, we compromise. We settle. We'll work with it. Because the truth of the matter is, God's mind is so outrageous that we cannot get it in our mind. And so the moment God says, this is what I'm going to do, we go to work on it. <laughs> and by the time we're done with it, it's a miniature-sized version of what God was intending to do. Yes? I'll give you two examples and then I'm done for the day. Well, for this service. The first example, and the way that we do this, you guys, is the way that Abraham and Sarah did it with Hagar. Okay? God will say, is anything too hard for me? And we will say, nope. Now let me help you. Because this is exactly what happens. He says, I will give you a son, but Sarah is barren. And so, rather than say, wait a minute, if Sarah's barren, God has a problem. He says, if Sarah's barren, we got a problem. We better come up with a plan. Note to self, you weren't the one making the promise, so you ain't the one who needs the plan. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? What you need is to believe it and sit tight. But when God starts speaking, our tendency is to say, oh, I know what he wants, and then dive in to do it. And nine times out of ten, not always, but nine times out of ten, it's not that we fail, it's that we succeed. It's not that we don't have kids, it's that we do. 
And the one we had is not the one he wanted. Would to God we failed every time we jumped the gun. But we don't. We're too good at knowing how things work. And so we know how to work things. Are you with me? This, I think, is the greatest problem with Hagar and Abraham. We have in our minds what we consider possible. And then we have in our minds what we consider likely. So we have two categories. Anything is possible. Sure. Order it up. But here's what's likely. Right? Now, the question is, how do we determine what's likely? We use our experience. What have I seen happen before? We use our education. I have a degree in this. I know how things work. I understand the laws of nature. I understand how things happen. We use our doctrines. I know God. I understand Him. <laughs> Can hardly say it and keep a straight face. So we have this this like construction in our mind of the way things work most of the time and so when God starts making promises the first thing we do is we squeeze those promises into a little box that we have started to create are you with me you say no yes God can do anything that he wants to do now let me tell you what he's likely to do because I understand how things work I know the system But you don't know God. <laughs> if you understand science, you have just grasped the floor of what God is capable of doing. I'm not minimizing you, because, dude, I'm below the floor. So you're at least on the floor, but you are nowhere near the ceiling. Because when God says, is anything impossible for me? The answer is no. Nothing is impossible for you. There are no rules for God. He jumps and decides in the air if he wants and this is important for us to learn right now because we tend to squeeze him into a previous box called experience. The second way that we will compromise with this is um, we will um, we'll negotiate God down. We'll settle. In Genesis chapter 17... Uh, there is a heart-rending story where God comes back to Abraham and he says, not only will the son come from your body, the son will come from Sarah's body. This is what Abram does. 
he says to the Lord, Oh, that Ishmael would live under your blessing. Just bless Ishmael. That'll be good enough. Does he not say this? And the Lord has too much respect to diss him. He just says, I will bless Ishmael, but Ishmael is not Isaac. And you haven't had your Isaac. Oh, we tend to do this. We tend to believe that every time God does something for us, that's as good as it's going to get. And listen to me, if you're over 40, that happens to an even greater degree. You start thinking that your body of work up to this point is as good as it's ever going to get for you. And so rather than asking God to do something exceedingly abundantly beyond what you've already done, you say to him, just bless my Ishmael and I'm good. I was teaching a class about five, six years ago. Uh, and it was homiletics class in here and we have a uh, we have a practice that we go through the students and I where we try to diagnose what is the real need that we should preach to it's not the felt need or the perceived need it's the real one at the core and the exercise goes like this I will ask the class what is the problem with society today at large they'll give me a word and I'll write it on the board that day they gave me the word society is busy too busy. So I just wrote too busy on the board. Then I said to them, is that the real problem or is there a problem underneath that problem? They said, no, that's not the real problem. The real problem is that they lack focus. When oh, now you're starting to get somewhere. So I crossed off too busy and I said, our problem is that we lack focus. I said, is that the real problem or is there a problem underneath that problem? They said, that is not the real problem. The problem of a loss of focus is a problem of contentment. We are bored. We are too easily satisfied. And so we pursue with all of this margin that we have in our lives, we pursue a dozen things, not one thing. Well, now I'm thinking, boy, you guys are on to a sermon. So, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm thinking, yeah, you go ahead and finish the class. I'm going to preach the sermon. I said, what are you talking about? They said, have you not seen this? You've not seen people who start to buy stuff, and then they get comfortable with it. And then they start making the payments. And before long, all of life becomes just about setting themselves up. Well, haven't you seen people that retired and they said to themselves, Oh man, looks like I have enough pension. And they settle down and they start to get bored. Have you not seen people, Steve, that got a degree? And they said to themselves, Whoa, I made it. And it's as if that's the last great thing God's going to do for them. Now they just got to keep working the degree. They said, we see a generation of people who have all of the toys. They've got a body of work that's respectable. They have a good name. They have a house on the lake. They have everything that they want. And they're bored to death. 
I said, who are you talking about? They said, you don't know? These are our parents. I said, how old are they? They said, about your age. I came back later that week. I happened to be reading through Genesis in my time alone with God. And I stumbled across Genesis chapter 17. Where Abram said, just bless my Ishmael. Just bless my Ishmael. I'm good. And I wrote a sentence to myself across those notes. And the note said, you have not yet had your Isaac. That's my word to some of you right now. You have not yet had your Isaac. You got your degree, but you don't have your Isaac. You've got a good body of work that everyone around you respects, but you do not yet have an Isaac. You've got a business that you've built, but you don't have your Isaac. You've got a large organization with a reputation that is stellar, but you do not yet have an Isaac. You have a nice, comfortable retirement, but you still don't have an Isaac. Somewhere along the way, you started to settle, didn't you? You started to say, well, it's not probably going to end as grand as I thought. But thank God I've got a little something. Thank God it's more than what I had a few years ago. And it is more than what you had. But it is an Isaac. And so my call for you this morning is to re-believe in the Isaac. Now listen to me. You can't just dream anything up and think God's going to do it. This isn't a mail order. God is on the hook for His Word, not your dreams. So you dream anything you want, but the only thing you get is what the Word of God told you you shall have. And so there is a place, there's a time where you'll be reading the Scripture and the Word of the Lord will stand itself up and speak directly into your soul. And it will say, this Word is for you. It's not for everyone. It's for you. And your heart seized it one day, didn't you? You felt a surge in the energy. And you said, yes, God is going to do incredible things. That was 24 years ago. And now you got all this experience. You know how things work. And it hasn't been that bad. You've done okay. But do you have, listen to me, do you have what he told you you would have? You can have it. There's a marvelous ending to this story. Chapter 21. Sarah. Sarah. At 90 years old. Has a baby. 
and they name the baby, he laughs. The baby's name is Isaac. It means he laughs. Who laughs? Well, consider the fact that the ancients almost never named their children after mortals. They named them after gods. Some believe that by the phrase, he laughs, they actually mean God laughs. Sarah, is born, Sarah gives birth to Isaac and God is laughing. Why is he laughing? Is he laughing in derision? Is it kind of a last laugh? Is it kind of a, see, I told you so, I'll have the last laugh? Or is God saying, I told you, I can do anything. And Isaac is born, and the room is full of laughter. God is laughing. The servants are laughing. A 90-year-old woman's laughing. My mother would be crying. There is laughter because God keeps his promises.